Slow down is probably the first step, especially off the back of the last couple of years. Take a moment, slow down and pull up from the weeds and stop thinking about the solution. Stop jumping straight to the solution. We are all guilty of that. I, more than anyone else probably, you know, we jump immediately to the solution. So it's pull back a couple of steps. Let's figure out why we're doing this. Let's figure out how we're going to prove we are successful. And then with that in mind, then figure out what you need to do and do it in that order. That's where you need to start. And that's absolutely crucial for ensuring that whatever change, whether it's a new process and you can roll it out in a week, or whether it's a strategic entire new arm of your business that takes 18 months to get up and running. Either end of that, that is where you need to start. Hi, I'm Brennan Baker, Managing Director at The Valuable Change Co. And you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership, the PDCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. Brendan Baker is converting others to a radical new idea. Keep it simple. Brendan is a leading expert in the field of change and has consulted in transformation projects across a range of industries. These have included public infrastructure, business and cultural transformations, shared service implementations, restructures, process overhauls, technology deployment, social policy, and more. Brendan's mission is clear. Help change leaders drive real value. Change, it's been a hot topic in the pharmacy industry, whether it be adapting to changing pharmacy workflows or being innovative and focused on how to best support your local community as a health destination. We are all involved in changing our organisations, whether we know it or not. The issue is the industry has overcomplicated it. From the obtuse jargon and untold reams of paperwork, it's just too hard, too confusing, and too academic. You don't have time for that. No one does. But perhaps it can be simple. And perhaps we have discovered Brendan Baker may have all the answers. Here's Brendan. Brendan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you joining us. You are the author of the book, Valuable Change. Talk to us about what your core philosophy is around change and, and about how to implement change. Thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, a pleasure to be here on the show. So the way that I think about change is change is hard. Change by its very nature is, is full of friction, uh, it's full of fear, uh, and, and it's hard. And so if we're going to do it, then we should make it worthwhile and then we should make sure that we actually achieve what we're looking for out of the end. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned my book, Valuable Change, and that's why I wrote that because the, the subtitle in that book is Valuable Change, How to Make Sure Your Change Pays Off. And that's exactly what we're, what is so often missing. When we think about change, quite often we, we govern it in terms of well, how much is this going to cost and how long is it going to take when they're not necessarily the right questions to ask and certainly not... Uh, they're part of the the discussion, uh, but they're not they're not the core of the discussion. And the the art there or the trick there is how do we do that simply? How do we do that without getting really deep and narrow? Like how do we get, do that without getting stuck in the weeds? And so that's that's what I really love. And I term that change leadership. 
is how do we drive our change holistically without getting stuck in the weeds? And how do we make sure that it really pays off at the end? Uh, and so, yes, that's, that's what I'm all about. So, Brendan, th- those questions are at how long, how much is it going to cost? Are, are they questions that are born from scars around poor change programs in the past, maybe? I think that's one part of it. But I think, I think the broader problem there is that when you look at the change industry uh, as a whole, it's essentially set up. Uh, and this might be a little bit controversial, but it's set up to sell certificates and courses and a whole bunch of things in that if you're a project manager, for example, you can get quite deep and narrow in project management. And there's a hundred, I think there's over 150 different certifications on things you can go and explore and get. And it's the same in change management. It's the same in stakeholder management. It's the same in, in XYZ. And, and, What's missing, and this is uh, what I've really experienced throughout my career, is that the change leadership across the top uh, is very unsupported by the industry. Because you're a leader, it's assumed that you know how to run a change, that you know how to drive a change, when driving a change is a little bit different to driving an operational style area, you know, or, or driving operations or driving BAU, driving a change uh, it is inherently different because there is inbuilt friction, there is inbuilt resistance, there is uh, th- that inbuilt difficulty. And so because that's in unsupported, a lot of the change leaders are unsupported, they default to what they know. And what they know is how much this, is this going to cost and how, much, how long is it going to take when there are some better questions to ask. Those are still important questions, don't get me wrong, uh, but they're just one part of a of a broader picture and those questions ultimately should come later they, they shouldn't be at the front well you speak about there's some um, inbuilt friction and sometimes there's not a lot of support or people at the top aren't necessarily qualified or experienced in change and know how to drive it it sounds like a difficult space to work in so what inspired you and led you to take on a, a role in supporting and inspiring organizations to tackle change and and what's been your background to getting to where you are today I've basically lived and breathed change my entire career. I was admittedly nice and naive through my teenage years, but as I'm sure you know, we all are, but I knew that I didn't want to do the same thing every day. That was the one thing I knew. Uh, you know, if you ask me what I wanted to do, I had several ideas, but I knew that I wanted to have inbuilt variety. And so I started my career in, in project management, essentially came on as a, as a graduate at, at um, at a, at a government department at a state level and started to learn project management, begged and begged, please give me my own project. I want to cut my teeth. I want, I want to do this. I can do this. And they gave me a tiny little project and I made every mistake under the sun uh, and, uh, and some very clear and immediate scars, uh, emotional, you know, career style scars through that. Um, but ultimately delivered the project uh, and then asked for another one. And I was essentially hooked initially. Uh, and so project management was really where I got my stripes and scars. And, and the first half of my career has been a, not just projects, but we're talking, you know, essentially it grew and grew. It was bigger projects, bigger progress, projects to the point where I was leading restructures and, and we're, we're leading transformations and, and essentially very, um, very rapidly grew in scope. 
in terms of what I was starting to lead there. Uh, and during that time, I wore basically every hat there is to wear in the change arena. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, when you think of a project manager, uh, it wasn't just project management, it was program management, it was the leadership, it was the risk, it was the support, it was the systems, it was almost anything in that whole space, I've done it. And there came a point where I realized I could help more people by shifting through to consulting and shifting through to a multi-client style setup. Uh, and so I did that and I, I went under a few other people's banners for a while to essentially learn how do, how do I do this. But again, it was in the change space. It was in organizations that were transforming, that were doing uh, strategic change. Um, and then through all of that, there was a clear pattern. And that's the pattern I've already alluded to here that there's a lot of support and there's a lot of rhetoric and methodology and tools and all kinds of things for people that are in change. But there's not a lot of support for the people that are leading change. And yet my experience across all of those different projects, programs, various types of change, were that it was the change leadership that so often uh, not necessarily caused it to fail, but certainly was the crux point as to whether or not it was successful or not. And that, that, was, uh, that was a key concern. And so I founded the Valuable Change Co to essentially try to help and help change leaders drive more valuable change in that space. But what's, there's been an interesting side effect that's come out of that. And I think this would be interesting for the listeners is that what I've discovered, what I've started to find is that a lot of the principles from the medium and large style change and working with change leaders in those kinds of realms, I started to see that a lot of the principles actually apply to what I call almost everyday change leadership because the pace of change is increasing quite dramatically. And I mean, anyone that's been through the last two and a half years can certainly attest to it. Um, and it's those, what are the key principles that we can pull out of some of these broader ones and apply them to our more operational, more everyday, um, more even BAU style change with this idea of embedding that, that continuous improvement, continuous learning, continuous innovation uh, through um, down into our teams as well. If we say the word change or the phrase change management, some connotations come to mind. People who have views, they're quite quick views, they might be really positive, but a lot of the time it scares people. They might have had negative experiences in the past. I wanted to get something out of the way fairly early or to be fairer, probably set the scene for the rest of the chat because often when we talk change, it sounds big and scary and hard and expensive. And to be fair, uh, a valuable endeavor and definitely important, but people still have work to do, as you said, their normal BAU, their normal role, and they don't necessarily have, like you said, in those large organizations, a full-time dedicated HR or change manager to help them drive the necessary change in their organization. But for small business owners, how do they begin and tackle the big change beast? Or, or, Or am I on the wrong track? Is it even as big as we think it is in our heads sometimes? Change is full of fear. And I mentioned that earlier, change is hard and it's full of fear. And so we, we do have this natural tendency to go, oh, 
This is this is this is scary, uh, right? And and the truth is, it's scary because it's unknown, and it's scary because there's probably unnecessary complexity baked into it. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on my mission around helping change leaders drive more valuable change. I actually have a secondary mission, and that's to fight unnecessary complexity. So it's really about driving back towards simplicity. So so bringing this, you know, making this really, um, and bringing this back in and, and answering that question, you know, how do, how do small business owners tackle the change beast? And I tend to think in, of change in terms of ripples, and I would encourage your listeners to do the same in that, change naturally ripples out the same way that almost any other human interaction ripples out. A, a little example I, I like to give here is um, if you if you go to a restaurant and the server that is serving you is sarcastic and rude and obnoxious, it has a negative influence has a negative influence and effect on your restaurant experience. Uh, and that's essentially that ripple effect through. Right, but what's interesting is it may it may not have been the server that was having the bad day. It may have been the restaurant manager or the store manager that was having the bad day, and that rippled through to the rest to the server, and that rippled through to the customer. And it's a really simple example, but I've seen that exact same ripple flow happen happen on a two hundred million dollar program, where the executive didn't get the core right. That flowed through into the teams. And that ultimately flowed through into the broader stakeholder groups and, and their own clients and the entire thing fell over. All right, so when we're looking at change, we need to think about it in terms of ripples. And the first ripple area is your change core. Now, uh, I'm not going to delve into all of the ripples in depth because uh, you know we, that, that probably will take more time than we have, um, but I'll give you a really, really high level view across all three ripples. The first one, the first ripple area is what I call your change core. And in it, you're answering three very, very important questions. I call them the three valuable questions. And so if we're looking at change, no matter if you're a small business owner or you're driving a massive transformation or anything in between, uh, you need to be answering these questions up front and doing them in this order. The first one is why are we changing or why are we doing this? That flows into how will we prove success, i.e. how will we actually prove we achieved the why? And then finally, what exactly are we doing? And you need to answer it in that order. Too often I see um, this whole idea of, oh, there's a shiny thing. Let's find a reason why, why we need that. Let's find a reason to incorporate that into what we do. And so that's starting with the what. Uh, and that's not what we want to achieve. If, if you want to achieve change that pays off, then you need to start with the why, translate that through into what success looks like, how are you going to actually prove you achieved the why, and then finally answer the what. It's extremely simple, uh, and yet it's extremely effective. And to, to give you an example of that, I use that in my own, I, I use that in my own business, but I was I was having a coffee yesterday with, uh, with a really small startup NGO. And they had a reasonable why. Uh, but what I did, ask them the three questions. And there were immediate insights that started to fall out. So I, that's exactly what I would encourage uh, anyone that's looking at any kind of change, doesn't matter how small, medium or large, um, 
answer those three questions and actually take the time to to connect them together. You can actually, you know, draw them, put them on a board, uh, draw three columns, put them on a board and connect them in. And that I find really, really beneficial. And that builds a nice clear core. And that helps you exclude things that you don't need to do. Uh, because there is this tendency to go, all right, well, let's start with all the things we need to do. And you start listing them off. But when you start with the why and you figure out how you're going to prove it, number one, it tells you the things you don't need to do. Uh, and then number two, it tells you the things that you're missing because not everything, everything that you immediately think you'll need to do won't connect back in. So got to start there. The second ripple out is building momentum within your teams. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later in this conversation. And then the third ripple out is how do we leverage influence and connection across our clients and across our broader stakeholder groups, um, which uh, at a really high level, it's really about how do we create better connection within our clients and, and use that connection to our advantage. Look, so they're the three ripples that we need to be thinking about changing. And it's really, really is quite simple. It doesn't need to be deep and complex and, and whatnot. As I said, you know, that, that change core is three columns on a whiteboard and half an hour of your time. And yet doing that saves you months on the back end as a minimum. If we relate that to some barriers that organisations face from your experience in supporting organisations to implement change, what do you see are some of the common barriers that, that get in the way of, of organisations being successful in trying to implement change? The first one there is getting caught in the detail, getting stuck in the weeds, starting with what, that whole idea of let's just make a list. I mentioned that earlier, but let's just make a list of all the things we need to do to, to get this done. Um, you will have to do that at some stage, but starting there means shooting yourself in the foot. That's the first and most common mistake that I see. Um, the second mistake that I tend to see is around what I call the value equation, which really it's about how do we actually get people to be on board with this? How do we get our, our teams, our, you know, our employees, our staff, or even our customers, how do we get them to be on board with the change that we're looking to make? And there's a really, really simple equation in there. And it really, it, it's an equation that's scientifically based and it underpins every decision that we make. And the equation is really simple. It's reward minus pain equals decision. Uh, and, then, and there's a really interesting study that was done by um, some researchers in Ghent University in Belgium. They were looking at um, this tendency for humans to avoid pain, pain avoidance. And before this study was done, the rhetoric and the most common accept, uh, acceptance in the field was that humans have a tendency to avoid anything that's painful. And that's not really a surprise and probably definitely won't be a surprise to anyone listening to this, right? But these researchers took a slightly different slant and they, they said that might not be the full case. And so what they did, they, got, they had two groups of students. The first group who we'll call the, the poor souls, they hooked them up to a, uh, an electronic uh, machine that essentially put simple number and letter-based questions in front of them. And every time they correctly answered a question, and I'm talking things like one plus one equals two, those kinds of things, 
Um, every time they correctly answered a question, they were zapped. Um, now, needless to say, that that first group didn't complete all the many of those uh, of those questions. Um, then they brought in a second group, and the second group will call the well remunerated poor souls. And this group of students, same machine, same questions, except they added two things. First of all, they added a point tally. So every time they answered a correct question, their points went up. So they were still zapped, but they got a point for each zap. And then at the end of the study, the higher their point score, the more money they were given for their essentially participation in the study. And again, it's probably no surprise, right? But the second group completed far more of those questions. Uh, quite quite notably. And so what the takeaway from that is that we yes, we humans tend to avoid pain, but we only avoid it if the reason isn't good enough to endure it. And so that's that's really the takeaway from this is that if we if we accept that change is hard and if we accept that um, change is painful, our job as a change leader is to look at that equation and look at stacking that equation in terms of how can we inc increase the reward for those affected by this change and how can we decrease the pain for those affected by this change. And so that's, that's the second most common mistake I see is that a tendency to overestimate the rewards and underestimate the level of pain included with a change. And so spending a little bit of extra time thinking it through uh, and even if you just use the basic rhetoric of let's just mentally double the amount of pain that we're actually expecting here and, and therefore provide support and, and anticipate double the amount of pain that, that we otherwise would expect, that's a quite a reasonable line in the sand to, to start from. And I think it probably creates a, a really positive mindset as you get to certain points in the change journey and you're not experiencing that much, po that much pain, you, you almost feel positive that you haven't got to that point and so it gives gives people a little bit of a, a boost, gives them some feedback that they're on the right path. So, Brendan, the role of pharmacy as a vital healthcare provider, uh, it's never been more evident as in the past two years while pharmacists have been supporting the pandemic here in Australia and also the floods and the bushfires and then the floods again and it continues and it continues. As a result, we do have many of our workforce who are pretty change fatigued from this time of rapid innovation with things like um, it's having to roll out vaccination programs for COVID and, and even still while expanding even other services in their pharmacies. What advice would you have for those people to keep our people, our workforce positive and still trying to maximise this great opportunity that is still ahead of us to to continue to expand our scope of practice and, and be able to offer more services to those people in our communities who need our support. When the floods hit uh, up in Brisbane, I've got a few clients up there and in the need, as you would expect, they, uh, they had to push the meetings a, a little bit while they were very quickly contending with the floods. And I was reflecting that over the last two and a half years, the lack of a crisis is probably the anomaly. Right, uh, it's between the fires and the COVID and you know the floods and uh, all of those many things. Um, yeah, it's it's been a turbulent few years for everyone, and so we're all feeling exhausted. We're all um, our nerves are frayed, 
And so my advice in that space is, first of all, lead with empathy. So consider the value equation, right? So, so keep in mind that idea of maximizing reward and minimizing pain, but, but more so lead with empathy and really try to consider all those alternative views because we are, we are all feeling fairly tired and fairly burnt from the last few years. Um, but the other thing that I'm experimenting with, and, and I'll be completely open with your listeners here, is that this is an experiment at the moment. Um, but what, I am ex- what I'm finding is that it's almost like the last two years, we've all been breathing in, right? We've all been breathing in. It's like take your big, big breath, crisis after crisis, and roll out on change and all of these things. And so there's talk now of the, of the great resignation. And what I'm, what I'm seeing is that it's more of a breathe out. People are needing to breathe out. They're needing to catch their breath. And, and so a, a lot of people are starting to breathe out via exit. They're just going to look, I need a break. I just need to quit for a while and then I'll, I'll reevaluate and I'll figure it out. And so that, that's their breathe out. And what I'm experimenting with my clients on, and, and perhaps this is something interesting for your listeners to experiment with as well, is maybe there's an alternative way to help them breathe out. And so what I'm experimenting with is can they breathe out through inbuilding times for reflection and camaraderie rather than breathing out via exit. Maybe they can breathe out through collaborative reflection and active camaraderie. So building in those, those times to essentially let them take a breath and let them have a downbeat and, and, you know, rewarding them appropriately to do so. um, But building that in as you'll stand as part of your standard planning uh, and building in those cycles, I think, that will have an interesting effect. Uh, it's too early for me to actually see the results of my clients, but it's an interesting idea and it's something that I'm personally experimenting with. In your book, Brendan, you have a, a, a great framing when you talk about momentum. And I, I love this, the use of the word momentum, because it, it can sound when we talk about change implementation and change journeys, sometimes we just think about the start where we are now and, and the end, and we don't consider exactly what's going to happen in the middle and how important momentum is because it it, it can be a bit of a tough slog but you talk about momentum and and the path that it takes and there's a there's a great diagram a great graph which which visualizes it for us now I know that this is an audio medium but it would be great if you could run us through what that looks like when I think about momentum I'm talking about team momentum and and I'm not talking about motivation as such momentum is bigger and broader than motivation Well, motivation is all about how do I get someone to do something for me? Well, momentum is broader. It's how is the team functioning? How is the team collaborating? How is it really coming together? And so when I think about momentum, I think about it in terms of two axes. As you mentioned, I've got got a nice pretty picture that goes with this, right? Um, Now, on the y-axis is hope. So the vertical axis, you've got hope. And when I say hope, I'm talking about an optimism for the future and an optimism for that individual's own position, not job, but their own personal role in the future. And that's hope. And then on the X axis, the the horizontal axis, we've got um, energy. Now I've, uh, the way I tend to describe energy is I've got a, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old daughter. Well, in fact, two daughters, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. 
And when you talk to a five-year-old or, you know, play with a two-year-old, you get that sense of energy. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not expecting your staff to bounce off the walls or jump off the lounges like my two kids do, but uh, it is that excitement and that enthusiasm. So if you think about momentum as the collision between hope and energy, it starts to provide some really interesting insights. And it's not a straight 45-degree line between the two. It's not as, as you know one increases, the other increases. What it is, it's actually a line that leans towards hope before it leans over to energy. You need to be increasing hope first. And that's why you can't motivate, or rather you can't use motivational strategies, things like empowerment and mastery and, and elements like that. You can't use those strategies on people that don't care, that people that are stuck in despair, that are looking for a way out. They don't care that, that, that you're looking to, you know, help them master something. They're looking for exit. Right? And so that's why that doesn't work because the hope is too low. And so hope is the first step. And so when you, when you think about it in terms of, okay, we build the hope first and then we lean over energy. I've found there tends to be five stages within there. And I'll give you a really, really high level overview here. Um, so the bottom two stages, uh, so really low hope, really low energy. Um, the very bottom is the pits of despair. And those are people that are stuck those are people that want to leave, but for whatever reason, can't. Uh, the next level up from there is fearful. The one above from that is hopeful. The one above from that is motivated. And finally, the top here, really high energy, really high hope, is fanatic. And that's the other interesting thing that comes out of this is that there is a level higher than motivation, and that's fanaticism. And that's an interesting thing to pursue. And that's a really, really interesting thing to start to actively, consciously look for uh, within your within your teams. It's a great explanation. And as I said, I love the framing of it. And I'm guessing the first step when engaging with, with that model and using it as a guide is getting an understanding of where you, your business and your team are in respects to that momentum because not everybody's going to be at that first point some might be already in the middle by luck or by design how do we figure out where we and our team are at, at at any point in time on that model you're absolutely spot on that that is the first step and speaking openly i would hope that uh we're not all starting at that first uh, that bottom level despair because uh, you tend to you don't you tend to not start there if you start a new job uh, or if you you know hire a new a new staff member, they're not starting in despair. They're not looking to leave because they've just started. Where they're starting is dead set in the middle. They're starting in hopeful. They they are cautiously optimistic. Uh, and so coming back to the question there, how do we figure out where we are? To be honest, momentum is felt. Momentum is more of a gut feeling more than anything else. There are a few metrics that you could monitor to essentially, you know, see if you are sliding down. Um, but when you when you're towards the top end, the metrics fall away. It, it, the only way to do it is to feel it. But if you want to make sure that you're definitely not in despair and your teams are not in despair and not in fearful, um, then you know there's metrics like uh, you know how much sick leave are they taking, um, how soon, you know, essentially what kind of um, 
our annual leave, you know, it's things like how are they maximizing their time away and are they maximizing their time away from work, right? Are they looking for an escape? And, and then any metrics that fall out of the back of that. Um, so towards the bottom end there, you can look that way, but honestly, it's the type of thing that you tend to just have to measure as a gut feel. And if you look at it in terms of where do we think we are, because each of those five stages are different enough that you can, as a, as a gut feel, say, you know, I think we're here. Um, mind you, the other thing that I do uh, with my clients is run an anonymous poll. And uh, it's really, really interesting because when you run that, quite often you'll say that individuals will put themselves higher. You know, will say, oh, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm motivated, I'm fanatical. I'm, you know, really enthusiastic, really happy to be here, even though it's anonymous. Um, but when you then ask the question, where do you think the whole team is? I think that's where you start to get the more accurate answers because they, you, there's, there's probably a greater courage, uh, a greater willingness to be a little bit more honest when it's not personified, uh, when, when, it's, when it's a group style thing. So, uh, look, if you want to build metrics into it, that's the way to do it. You can just go and ask them uh, and, and ask them in such a way that it, there's no penalty involved. So anonymous and asking based on a group and things like that. Um, but otherwise, it's really about just feeling that momentum and, and actively being aware of it. You mentioned the ability to bring people along on the journey and that momentum is felt, it's not seen. In a pharmacy, we know it's not just the pharmacists who own the business that drive that business. It's a team approach to achieving any form of change. Despair and, and being fearful sound like really bad stages, rightly so. If someone thinks they are at those levels when they look at their business and, and their team, how do they engage and, and bring their team along so that they can feel the progress from moving away from being fearful to hopeful? I'll, I'll give you a really, really quick summary in here. So if you're, if you're reading that your teams are stuck in the, in the pits of despair or if that you're picking up really strong levels of fear, um, first of all, you need to give them an excuse for hope. We humans don't like to change our minds. Once we've made up our mind, uh, we need a fairly good reason to change that. Um, and so someone that's in despair, they've written off your business. They're going, look, I don't like it. It's not working for me. I'm just actively looking for a way out or I can't leave because I need the income or, I, you know, it's, it's, it's my nearest business or whatever the case may be. Um, they want to leave, but they can't. So you would have to give them a physical excuse. You would have to change something quite notable for them to help pull them out of that, uh, that pit of despair. And essentially it's an excuse for hope. Uh, you're essentially planting a little hope seed, right? And when I say something physical, uh, could be something like moving them to a different office, giving them a new role, uh, re-evaluating something. You know, it, it has to be a fairly notable shift for them personally. Um, that would create a new sense of hope. Um, but you're not going to see it. You will not see it. You will be met with immense level of cynicism and, uh, you know, almost a, a complete disregard but you are essentially planting that seed. Um, then, then let's say you, know, you move up to fearful or you've got a team that's descended down and they're feeling really fearful, perhaps a little burnt out. Um, what you can do in there is it's, you need to focus on normalizing success 
normalizing failure and normalizing reflection. So giving them the ability to succeed without penalty, which sounds weird, right? Surely we would celebrate success, but um, especially within Australia, we're all a little go we're all a little guilty of uh, tall poppy, right? Uh, so being consciously aware that we're not cutting down standout achievement uh, within our business, but then also looking at failure and uh, letting them experiment and encourage them to experiment. And you only get that by normalizing uh, failure because we're not always going to get it right all the time. Uh, and then finally, in normalizing reflection, allowing them to come together and learn from each other. And not only just allowing them, but creating the space and encouraging it. That's what I'd be looking for to help address the fear. Some great advice, great framing, great directions. Across the board, are there any other strategies that you can share with people that they can employ to help them level up from those those initial stages? And this might be one of the last points I think we touched on today is let's look at the other end of that momentum path real quick. Uh, let's look at what's above motivated, uh, that, that level of fanaticism. And so when I talk about fanaticism, uh, I'm talking the people that camp out overnight to get the latest iPhone. I'm talking the people that used to dress up at midnight launches to get the latest video game or Harry Potter book or, or whatnot. Like that's fanaticism. And you can't necessarily expect that kind of fanaticism from your staff. I mean, I've certainly seen it. I've seen staff wear swag and really love that, but, but that's, that's the exception of the rule. Um, but what you can do and what fanaticism is more about is getting people talking about you. And it's not just even within your teams, but it's also within your client base, your customer base, is how do you get people talking about you? And I've tended to find there's two key principles or two key elements that you need to have in place to get people talking about you. Uh, the first is you need to create a sense of belonging. You need to help them feel that they are part of your endeavor, that they are part of, of that bigger whole. Uh, and then secondly, you need to create what I call positive disruption is you need to essentially give them something to talk about because they're not going to talk about you unless there is something interesting to talk about. So give them something different, give them something new, that positive disruption um, and, and really start to look at essentially giving them, uh, giving them ways to make them look like they are really well informed that, that they are interesting. And so you're doing something interesting, which they can talk about, which then makes them look interesting. And that's the whole idea between positive disruption. So if you achieve that belonging and positive disruption, you can start to strive towards this level of fanaticism, both within your teams, but even broader within your customer base. So much great advice, Brendan, maybe to tie it together to get help people take that first step for those that are listening and they feel inspired and they want to get started soon. What's one piece of advice you would give them to, to get them to take that first step? Slow down is probably the first step, uh, especially off the back of the last couple of years. It's take a moment to slow down and pull up from the weeds um, and stop thinking about the solution. Stop jumping straight to the solution. We, we, are, all, we are all guilty of that. I'm more than anyone else probably, you know, we jump immediately to the solution. So it's pull back a couple of steps. Let's figure out why we're doing this. Let's figure out how we're going to prove we are successful. And then with that in mind, then figure out what you need to do and do it in that order. That's, that's where you need to start. And that's absolutely um, crucial for ensuring that whatever change, whether it's 
uh, you know, a new process uh, and you can roll it out in a week or whether it's a strategic entire new arm of your business that takes 18 months to get up and running. Either end of that, that is where you need to start. Brendan, great chat, very insightful. If people want to learn more about you and the work that you do, keep the conversation going, maybe grab a copy of the book. What can they do? Where can they go? I'm at valuablechange.com and the book is Valuable Change, uh, what you need to know to ensure your change pays off. Um, The book is available however you want to consume it. You want it in an e-book? Cool, it's there. If you want it paperback or hardcover, it's there. If you want an audio book, which is my preference, uh, I'm the type that will pop it on during the commute. Um, I've also released an audiobook. So however you want to consume it, rock and roll, um, it's Amazon, it's Google Books, it's wherever you want. Um, but if you want to find me, uh, I'm at valuablechange.com. Uh, I do have a weekly change leadership newsletter, the, the Change Leader Weekly. I'd encourage you to jump on and sign up. Uh, I'm very happy to say that our unsubscribe rates on that are um, incredibly low, uh, like very, very, very low. And yet the the subscribe rates have been increasing dramatically. So I must be doing something okay there, um, which, which is great. Uh, but also feel free to connect with, with me on LinkedIn. Um, and honestly, I always say this, but it's, it's the truth. I'm really just an email away. If you listen to this and you have a thought bubble uh, and you just want to ask me a question, just send me an email. Lots of resources, lots of connection options. Can't ask for much more than that. Brendan Baker, Managing Director at Valuable Change Co. Thank you so much for coming on the show and inspiring us to make positive change in our businesses. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. What an insightful conversation with Brendan. I truly hope you took something out of that chat, some key things that you can take away and back to your pharmacy. The Guild has a number of resources, including the Framework for Change document that outlines nine key pathways for change in your pharmacy. To find out more, visit guild.org.au or for more from Brendan, visit his website at valuablechange.com. I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 95 of the PBCN podcast. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.